to welcome you all to the Berkman Lunch Series and welcome Vicki Katz, who is here to speak about her research on the underconnected in America, how lower income families are responding to digital equity challenges. This talk is part of the Inclusive Innovation Speaker Series, a series of talks about how marginalized communities create, adapt, and use technology to serve their own needs and goals. A couple housekeeping announcements before we begin. Please be aware that our luncheons are webcast live and recorded on our website, um, or for our website. People can ask questions and participate online via Twitter using the hashtag Berkman. And Vicki is happy to take questions during the presentation, and we particularly encourage questions from new people in the audience uh, who have joined us this week. So a little introduction, um, Vicki Katz is an associate professor in the Department of Communication and affiliate graduate faculty in the Department of Sociology at Rutgers University. She conducts research on immigrant and low-income families' efforts to access U.S. social institutions, resources, and opportunities, with a particular interest in how di digital equity issues affect these experiences. Her findings have been published in journals including American Behavioral Scientists, Journal of Communication, and Social Problems. She is the author of Kids in the Middle, How, How Children of Immigrants Negotiate Community Interactions for Their Families, and co-author of Understanding Ethic Ethnic Media, Producers, Consumers, and Societies. She holds a BA from UCLA and an MA and a PhD from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism uh, at the University of Southern California. Thank you, Vicki. So thank you. Is it, we can hear me, I hope? Yes? Okay. Thank you very much, Emmy, and thank you to all of you for making the time to be here. It's a, it's a thrill to get to uh, speak to the Burke Maniacs, having followed so many of your work for such a long time. Um, so I'm going to talk to you today um, about a project around digital equity, and it's kind of fun to talk to a group like this because there's very little introduction that's required um, for understanding what digital equity is and why it's important. Um, but as equitable access to the internet and internet connecting technologies has increasingly become recognized as being linked to social inequality more generally, that the people who are least likely to be connected or to have quality connections are those who experience other social inequalities more broadly. The fear has obviously become that digital inequality may exacerbate existing social inequalities, but the hope is that access might ameliorate some of those inequalities. And we've seen that rhetoric play out, especially within the schools, um, that being connected uh, for kids in schools is an, has become an urgent national priority. Uh, many of you may be familiar with Obama's Connect Ed program that over the last number of years has worked to put high-speed broadband into all of uh, the nation's schools, and they're reporting that they're close to 99% um, at this point. And as schools have become effectively universally connected, the focus has moved more and more to what happens outside of school. So looking at children not as students in schools, but also as children within families. Um, and that's where my project is situated. Um, out of the 2010 National Broadband Plan uh, came a proposal to have subsidized broadband internet available for families whose kids were on free and reduced cost lunch. At least in the original formulation of this plan, this would have been a government-run program. Um, what happened in the wake of the Great Recession is that it became a public-private partnership with local telecommunications companies, uh, which means that the programs were rolled out unevenly and a little bit differently in each site, depending on who had taken this on. Sometimes telecommunication companies did this as a condition of a merger, sometimes for other types of uh, benefits, but it rolled out differently in different places. Um, and so the program's called Connect to Compete. Uh, it offered uh, $9.95 a month subsidized broadband access to the lowest income families with school-aged kids. In some places, that was paired with um, the opportunity to purchase a refurbished uh, computer or internet connecting device at reduced cost. And in even fewer places, it was paired with uh, skills training 
for parents and children. Um, and so what I was interested in as the rhetoric around this program was you know, starting to become stronger and the program was starting to be rolled out is what was the bottom-up response to these kinds of top-down digital equity programs? Were these programs meeting people's needs? How were they responding to them? How did parents make decisions about adopting subsidized broadband programs that are available to them in their community in context of the other kinds of technology initiatives that might be available through local school districts, um, but also their own independent decisions to purchase technologies or to um, have broadband access within their homes. How do parents and kids make decisions about adoption? How do they make decisions about integrating technology into their everyday lives? And how does that look different depending on the local environments in which those decisions take place? I'm going to talk less about the local level differences today, just in the interest of having time for discussion. Um, but I'm happy to take questions about that. And my colleague, uh, Carmen Gonzalez, and I recently published an article on the local level differences um, in American behavioral sciences that I'm happy to share with you as well. So, let me tell you just a little bit about the study um, that, we can, that I conducted. Um, so with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, this was a project with two stages. Between July 2013 and February of 2015, I led a very talented team of bilingual and bicultural uh, student researchers to conduct open-ended interviews with parents and children in three school districts that were demographically similar, one in Arizona, one in California, and one in Colorado. All three districts were majority Hispanic and specifically majority Mexican heritage, meaning that parents might be immigrants or US born but of Mexican descent. And I'll explain why in a second. Um, and more than three quarters of the students in these districts were on free or reduced cost lunch. So all high poverty districts, all Mexican heritage, all um, districts that were rolling out connect to compete. So we knew that across all three districts, families had the possibility of access to at least one subsidized uh, digital equity initiative uh, aimed at increasing broadband adoption. Um, the reason that I focused on districts that were specifically Mexican heritage is because a lot of diversity is lost under the umbrella label of Latino. Um, and Mexican heritage youth are those that face um, the greatest social inequalities in the United States. They're more likely than any other group to be growing up in poverty more likely to have a parent that hasn't finished high school and or to have a parent that doesn't speak English fluently. And so I wanted to focus on the highest need group within our fastest growing demographic with a rationale, rationale that um, rising uh, waters kind of carry all ships. If you've looked at the highest need groups, you will capture some of the needs of groups that have slightly less um, vulnerability, but not the other way around. Um, and so in each of these three school sites, we worked very closely with schools um, through a rapid approach to qualitative data collection. We spent between two and three weeks in each study site um, and conducted interviews with between 50 and 60 families in each district in that time, um, interviewing parents and kids separately for about an hour each in their language of preference, either at home or school, according to their preference. Um, and I'm happy to talk in more detail about what we um, what we asked them about, but we really asked questions about how, from parents and kids' perspectives, how they make decisions about adopting technology, how connectivity affects family relationships, learning activities, connections to local services and resources, um, and we tailored those questionnaires to each site to some degree. Some of the questions were universal, but we also asked them about local initiatives that were happening in the district so that we could look at that as well. Um, all, all the parents um, had children, a focal child that we interviewed between um, kindergarten and eighth grade, so ages six through 13. Um, so we had an enormous amount of qualitative data, which we, um, which we coded and analyzed. It's a data set that we're using in a variety of ways to understand things in its own right, but we also used it to do um, something that's a little bit more unusual. Um, we used what we'd found from the qualitative data to inductively develop a survey questionnaire that was a nationally representative look at lower income parents with kids in the same age range. Um, and I say that this is unusual because very few national level surveys do systematic qualitative um, data collection ahead. Um, the questions that we asked came out of our interviews. The categories for answers came out of our interviews. Um, and so the convergence amongst our results is something that we feel more confidently actually shows us that there's a there there um, because we were asking questions that came from one of the demographics that we surveyed. Um, so but in um, 
spring of last year, we did a nationally representative phone survey on cell phones and landlines, um, parents with kids in the same age group. We focused not just on families um, who had, whose kids qualified for free and re reduced cost lunch, we also focused on lower-income families, meaning that to qualify you needed a kid in school between ages 6 and 13, and you needed to report a total household income below the national median for parents raising kids in the United States, which is $65,000. Um, about half the sample was white, 30% Hispanic, 16% black, and amongst the Hispanics, um, almost two-thirds uh, were of immigrant um, were, were of immigrant stock, and half were Spanish-speaking. So we've got a robust um, sample of Spanish and language and English language um, parents. Um, so I want to talk to you about three points um, across the two data sets uh, in our time today. Uh, the first thing is related to family connectivity, which is that we found both in the qualitative and quantitative portions of the study that most families are connected but they're not as connected as they want to be. So amongst our, sur our, our survey uh, respondents, 94% of parents in this demographic report that they have internet access. So this is a far cry from the rhetoric of the digital divide that um, you know, these are the families that would fall on the have-not side of that binary, right? 94% of them have internet access. Amongst those who report incomes below the federal poverty level, it's 91%, right? Um, of the 94% that have access, uh, two-thirds report that they have home broadband access. 23% are mobile only, um, meaning that they have a smartphone or a tablet that they use to connect to the internet, but they don't have a home computer, either a laptop or a desktop. 5% report having dial-up access at home, and then 6% report that they don't have access. Um, we also found that 81% of families owned either a laptop or a desktop computer, 79% have at least one smartphone in the home, and two-thirds, 67%, have a tablet. Right? So these are homes that are more media-rich and more connected than would be presumed for lower-income families raising children. Yeah? Yes. We, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's, a, it's within that 23%. I think it's about a quarter. Um, yeah, but we asked them whether or not they're connecting through a data plan or whether they're only connecting in public spaces that have Wi-Fi, um, including libraries, but also local businesses. Um, I, can, I can check that. Um, but the majority had data plans of some kind. Yeah. What threshold are you using for broadband? We asked about four different questions um, where we asked in a variety of ways, you know, whether they had um, fiber, whether they, um, you know, had a high-speed connection. We used every possible word we could use to, and then group them together to see what would count. On the next slide, you'll see, though, that this is only the very beginning of the story um, because we can't, the, the digital divide or digital inequality is not um, not over. Let's, let's put it that way, right? So if you stop at just the access question, this looks great, right? Wow, we've really done an amazing job of connecting lower-income families. Except that what we find is that access is not enough of a question. Um, what we're proposing, as opposed to the digital divide binary that we tend to still use um, since the 90s when it uh, reflected a reality in the early days of the Internet, is that it's not enough to ask whether or not people have access. It's really a question of whether or not they're as connected as they want to be, right? How high quality is that connection? How consistent is that connection? So based on the interviews and what people had said their challenges to staying connected were and as connected as they wanted to be, we asked people a variety of questions about whether or not um, they'd experienced certain problems with their connectivity in the last 12 months. And we asked more questions than these. But for those who have home access, more than half reported one, of, one or more of these issues, that their service had been cut off for an inability to pay, that too many people share the computer for them to have enough time on it, um, that their service is too slow. For the quarter of parents who have mobile-only access, you can see that uh, almost 30% have hit their data limits in the last year. Uh, one in four has had their service cut off due to an inability to pay. And one in five say that too many people share the device for them to have enough time on it. Um, 
for uh, immigrant Hispanic parents, the number who have experienced at least one of these challenges is 65% of, of that sample, right? So there's variation within, but um, what we are affording is this idea that rather than looking at connectivity as a binary, which is something so many people, including many in this room, have been arguing for years, it's time to put the digital divide to bed and think about this in a more textured way, is that we're offering this as another contribution to that conversation, that maybe thinking of people as being more and less connected and who's underconnected offers multiple avenues for trying to remedy this from a policy perspective, from a program perspective, and so on. Um, yeah? Smartphones, what access do young people have to those smartphones? What percentage? It's funny that you ask that. Let me tell you. <laughs> Did you get an advanced copy of these? So I want to show you why mobile only doesn't get us to solving the problem either. Um, because there's been a lot of rhetoric, especially in the last five or eight years, talking about the high rates of adoption amongst young people, um, amongst people of color, lower income adults, and kids of mobile technologies. And many people have made at least the insinuation that leapfrogging over the laptop or the desktop computer isn't that big of a deal and that mobile can replace, uh, replace the capacities of a computer. Um, anyone in this room who has ever waited until they get home to write a long email or to fill out an application or do anything more than fire off you know, a tweet knows what I'm talking about, that it's not the same thing if you can only use a mobile device. We know that. Yeah? Do you know what happened to them? Did they, because if they don't have a credit history, maybe they can't get new service, or are they aware of the ability to get um, free or subsidized service, and are they able to access those kinds of services? I'm going to address that in two slides time. Um, I'll, be able to, I'll be able to speak to that. Um, but I wanted to show you, we asked parents a set of questions about things that they do online. Again, these categories that we asked about were things that came out of our interviews. So you can see that there are distinctive differences amongst parents that are mobile only, which is the green, um, versus those that have access through um, a laptop or desktop, right? That there's a 12% difference in using the internet to get news. Um, there's a 25% difference in using it for online banking and bill paying. There's a 30% difference in using it to shop, which might seem like a silly thing, but if you think about how much money you've saved by shopping online, um, for low-income families, this is not an insignificant disadvantage. Um, being able to comparison shop online versus in your local community, for anyone who is studying, um, how people engage technology in underserved and inner city communities, having to go to the local bodega to buy things instead of being able to buy them online could be a markup of anywhere from 100 to 300%. So this is not an insignificant finding. Um, applying for jobs and services they qualify for, including poverty alleviation programs, the people who need those the most, right, because the people who are mobile only were disproportionately lower income within our sample, disproportionately immigrant, disproportionately um, parents with less education, they're less likely to be applying for jobs and services online. Um, we asked them about what their kids do um, in, uh, with the technology in response to your question. We asked them about a range of things that their kids do and different activities their kids do online, but I wanted to highlight two of them. Um, for kids who are growing up in homes where they only have access through a mobile device, whether it's their own or parents, there's a 20% difference in whether or not they use it every day, which we know is one of the things that allows kids to develop skills and confidence is having regular access to the technology. But they're also almost 20% less likely to be looking up things that they are interested in. Um, anyone in this room who's ever looked at or been concerned about interest-driven learning, this is a real problem, right? Because the inability of 
or the constraints that are disproportionately put on certain kids, even in comparison to other lower income kids, when it comes to being able to drive their own curiosities and seek out more information about that, not in an environment that's being led by a teacher or another adult, but that their own curiosities are driving them to seek information, is something we should all be concerned about because a love of learning is rooted in the experiences of being able to follow your own interests down a rabbit hole if you so choose. And these kids are doing it less even than other low-income kids when it comes to being able to do that kind of thing online. Um, so I wanted to give you just a little bit of a sense of some of the challenges of being underconnected um, from the interviews as well. So what we found was that um, you know, parents and kids talked at length about creative strategies and sacrifices they were making in order to be able to afford internet connectivity and to be able to afford to, to have devices in the home for their kids. Um, this involved foregoing things for themselves, um, extending out a much needed car repair, waiting for a tax return, consolidating Christmas and birthday gifts into a single gift that was a tablet or computer for the whole family to share. But they were making these sacrifices because they'd absolutely bought into the idea that this is something their children needed to master in order to be successful in their, their current environments, but also um, for their future educational opportunities. Um, they used what they had to the extent that they were able to do so, but there were also realities that parents made a lot of tough choices. Um, I'm going to talk in just a minute about how much they were actually using subsidized broadband programs, but this is a, one quote that gives you an example of the kinds of realities that parents are facing. And any digital equity program that is aimed at lower income families that doesn't allow um, for forgiveness of debt with that company is a program that doesn't work for a lot of families. Because when families are making decisions between keeping the lights on and keeping the internet, something <coughs> is going to go. And making it impossible for them to sign up for a subsidized program if they have debt effectively means that you're disqualifying a considerable number of families. Um, you can see that this is, a, this is one of a number of, a very large number of parents who talked about the kinds of difficulties that they have in being able to pay for it, but that they're really trying to prioritize paying for the internet. And many of them are paying much more than the 9.95 a month. Um, so that's the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, so far, Families are largely connected, but many are underconnected in comparison to how connected they would like to be. But very few of them are benefiting from programs that are designed for low-income families like Connect to Compete. What we found in the survey is that for parents who would financially qualify, because if you're the threshold for qualifying for most of the programs, including Connect to Compete, is being below the 185% um, of the federal poverty line. Um, amongst parents who qualify financially for these programs, 6% of them had ever used them. And a quarter had disconnected their service since they'd started using it. And that looked very much like the interviews. Um, consistent with the survey findings, we found amongst 170 families who were randomly selected from lists of students within those schools, and then we called to see if they qualified in terms of um, being of Mexican heritage and ensuring that their kids were on free or reduced cost lunch. So we did repre representative interviews with 170 families in three school districts, right? 37 had ever signed up for Connect to Compete, even though it was in all three districts and they all qualified for it. And of the families that, of those 37, only eight were going online for the first time. So the program is ostensibly designed for families getting online for the first time, but most low-income families are already online. They might not be as connected as they want to be. They might be paying too much money for it. But a much larger number than the program designers could have anticipated are already online in some way or shape. Um, you know, the program was a mismatch for family needs, and it showed that service providers had different perceptions of families. They were perceiving them as the have-nots on the wrong side of the digital divide. And so they were offering a program that didn't reflect the realities of what families had in their homes and what kinds of connectivity they wanted. The up and download speeds were very slow, sometimes as low as three or four megabits, um, which meant you couldn't stream video 
It's a modem with a single Ethernet cord. If you're mobile only, that's not going to serve your needs. If you have multiple devices, it's not going to serve your needs. And so for a lot of families, they said that they had found out about the program and they'd assessed that it was not offering them the same internet that they were paying 40 or $50 a month for. It didn't fit the family's needs and therefore they couldn't use it. Um, most service providers, as I've already insinuated, um, had disqualification if you had debt with the company. Um, some of them had documentation requirements, which either scared off potential users um, or disqualified them outright. Um, and for a number of the companies, if you currently have an account with them, you have to disconnect for either three months or six months, depending on the company, in order to qualify for the $9.95 a month, which is would be funny if it was funny, um, that you have to disconnect in order to connect. And most families said our connectivity is too important to us for us to be disconnected for three or six months so the offer doesn't apply. So the program, it really wasn't meeting um, people's needs, uh, as, as you can see here. Yeah? What has been the response to these outrageous uh, facts and the regulatory response, if any? Um, well, <laughs> I've, I've had some interesting public and private conversations with uh, some of these companies. We can talk about that when it's not live streaming. I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, but there has been some response and some movement to start offering uh, routers as part of the programs. The changes to the Lifeline program, which we can perhaps talk about in more detail in the Q&A, but this is a big deal. Um, right, Lifeline, should I explain? Yes, okay. So the Lifeline program um, through the Federal Communications Commission was set up in order to provide um, access to telephone service for the lowest income people in America who couldn't afford it, um, you know, a couple of decades ago. Uh, as with the argument that you, you, these were the people who most needed a lifeline, right? That if so, you had an emergency in your home, you needed to be able to call out. And if there was an emergency in your community, to disadvantage those people that they couldn't find out about that threat was something that we couldn't countenance as a country. Over time, uh, that's been expanded as the technologies change to include subsidies for cell phones to a limited degree. And in the last couple of months, the FCC has been deliberating Emmy is eminently more qualified to have this conversation than I am. Um, but they've been debating whether or not to make um, subsidies available for broadband. And in the past month, they've announced that they're going to do that. Um, what's fantastic about what they have agreed to do is that they've, for the first time, set a national floor on subsidized broadband programs, that it has to be no less than 10 megabits up and download speeds. Um, which is much higher than most of these programs have been offering previously. And even more importantly, they're reserving the right to increase that floor as the technology changes, um, which allows the program to actually evolve along with the technology, which is fantastic. But it's also the first time that we've had something that will be offered nationally. It's not, in, it's, it's not enough, but it's a great start. Right? And it's an indication that these conversations are moving forward. Um, that combined with the Connect Home initiative that um, HUD has been working on to connect um, residents in public housing, right? There's some movements towards really systematizing access to broadband as people are realizing and recognizing that you can't address social inequality without addressing how digital inequality plays into that. So um, I think that public-private partnerships have potential that has not been realized in this particular iteration of the program, but there's a lot of good work that's happening to move forward on a number of fronts to make the programs better than they have been. Yeah. Uh, are these uh, providers politically neutral? In, I mean, I, before before I answer that question, I'm going to ask you to today? explain. A lot of the material that comes over the internet is has its own political messages underneath. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether these programs are politically neutral or they're providing some subliminal message that's destructive. And 
in their direction rather than in the direction of the people who are receiving them. That hasn't been my experience. I think that for the most part, um, the executives that are crafting these programs may have um, inaccurate <coughs> perceptions of who it is that they're serving with these programs, but there is actually a desire to be part of a solution, however imperfectly they, that might be in the execution. Um, I think what you're proposing sounds um, frightening. I hope that's not playing, and I have no evidence to suggest that it is. Um, and there might be people in this room that can shed more light on the question than, than I can, at least from the data that I have. Um, but I haven't had a conversation with anybody. They might be resistant to accepting this evidence as something they need to make changes about, but I haven't ever encountered anybody saying anything that I would think is nefarious um, or underhanded in the way that you're um, asking. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this is one mom, but it reflects the um, experiences of so many parents uh, with regards to this program that effectively she would realize she was paying $10 a month to not use it, had disconnected and started paying $50 a month. Um, so these programs, as they stand, are not meeting the needs of most families, and it's a missed opportunity um, to actually have impact in the digital equity space. The last thing that I wanted to um, talk about is um, technology and family learning. So most of the families um, are connected. They may not be as connected as they want to be. They're not benefiting overall from programs designed for subsidized um, access to the internet and to related technologies, but they are making absolutely the most of what they have um, in terms of engaging and learning with each other. Um, and I think that this is a very important piece for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, these are families that are too often defined by their deficits rather than their strengths. Um, even referring to them as lower income or low income families defines them by deficit and in income. Um, they're often defined by deficits in education, in language proficiency, and on and on and on. And if we only focus on their deficits, we, miss, we, we really risk missing the things that make them strong um, and recognizing those strengths as a point of entry to make families partners in the kinds of changes they want to see for themselves and their communities. To me, as a person, but also as an empirical researcher, the evidence demands that they be con considered as partners because any effort to make sustainable change is not going to work without them. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the kinds of learning that parents and children and siblings are doing with each other around the technology once they've made decisions to adopt it. Um, and something that I'm working on um, is a set of um, articles around the idea that parents and children are digital learning, are working more and more as digital learning teams. Um, and it's a term that comes from one of our interviewed parents. Um, and I like the term teams because it emphasizes that all players matter um, and that the results of the efforts are shared rather than presuming that parents should be leading the way when it comes to technology and that something is rotten if children are leading the way or that it's something we need to panic about. Um, and what we found in our interviews is that parents and children are scaffolding each other's learning. They're bringing different skills to the table and they're exchanging expert and learner roles in dynamic ways that are important for us to think about. Um, I brought a few copies of some of the reports. They're also on our website. But one of the um, families that we profiled in this report, which is um, six case studies of the 170 families, um, is Veronica and Teresa, um, who were um, one of the families we interviewed. Uh, actually, I conducted this interview in our um, Arizona study site. And so you can read more about this, but I wanted to tell you just a little bit. Um, Teresa is an immigrant from Mexico who doesn't speak um, proficient English. She has four daughters and she's a single mom. And so she engages the help of her daughters in a variety of ways in order to um, engage with technology. And the reason that I've started thinking about this as digital learning teams is because the families themselves recognize that what they're doing with each other is learning. It's a self-defined term, not one that I'm placing on them, which for me is an important thing. So 
one of the things that she told us in the interview and in the time that we spent in her home is that when she can't find a website, her daughters will often take the computer from her to start doing it for themselves. And she has to stop them and say, teach me, right? Teach me how to find it myself. Because they're very quick to do it for her. She wants to learn how to fish, right? Um, with an F, not the PH, right? Um, sorry. Man, I love that that's a joke I could just make in this room and it works. Um, so she's asking them to teach her how to do it, and they help her to acquire new skills. Um, her daughter, who I interviewed, um, talked about how her mom, even though she's not fully confident with the technology and even though she's doing homework in English, her mom will often come and sit right next to her on the couch while she's doing her homework. Um, and because she's right there, she'll use her mom as a resource for her homework whenever she needs some help. Um, she'll ask her mom, she'll help me, and she learns a little more. So they are recognizing these as back and forth exchanges in a way that is important, right? That they're not only recognizing this as learning, but they're valuing those experiences is something that requires a deeper look. Um, I want to show you also um, something from our survey data that um, we are just about to submit to, um, to a journal for review. Um, one of the things that we did in the survey was we first asked parents whether or not they've ever helped their kids um, learn how to use a device or to get online. And we asked them if their children have ever helped them to do the same thing. And what we found was that 77% of parents have helped their kids across the, the sample. So across all education ranges, across um, racial and ethnic origins, across language groups, three quarters of parents have helped their kids on this sort of universal question. And more than half say that their kids have helped them, right? which is a high number because that's actually for every parent that we surveyed. If we looked just at older kids, like 10 to 13, that proportion would be higher. Some of the parents we were asking about a six or seven year old, right? Um, but 53% have had a kid help them. And 81% say that their kids, if they have more than one kid between ages six and 13, 81% of their kids have helped each other learn how to use technology, right? So those are high numbers. Um, then if they said that you know, they help their kids or their kids help them, we asked them specific questions. And again, the, these particular activities were things that came out of the interviews. So when it comes to learning how devices work, um, you know, the most basic question, which is in the third column there, um, fixing things that go wrong with devices, finding and translating if they spoke a language other than English in the home, um, and downloading apps, software, music, and movies, which is something that seems to still scare parents more than other activities. Um, we ask them those questions. What this table shows you is the differentials in how much kids broker those connections for parents versus how much parents are guiding kids, right? So all the um, cells that are in white, that's the percentage more help that parents are providing kids than the reverse, right? So for college graduate parents in the, in the survey, they're providing 26%, they're providing help on fixing things that go wrong 26% more often than their kids are helping them fix things, if that makes sense, right? These are the differentials in the amount of help on each of these activities. And so what we found is that there's clusters within the survey. Um, we found that the two uh, demographic variables that made the most difference in terms of how much help is flowing between parents and kids are um, what we're calling race and ethnic origins because we, we're dividing into white, black, uh, Spanish-speaking Hispanic, and English-speaking Hispanic as the four groups, right? So it's both language and race and ethnicity. Um, and parental education. Income didn't make a significant difference, but that might be because we're only looking at parents who are in the bottom half of the income spectrum, right? There might not be enough variability. But we found that there are three groups where across the board parents are helping more. But it varies across activities and it varies across those groups, how much more help they're providing their kids than their kids are providing to them, right? College graduate parents, not surprisingly, are providing more help to kids more guidance to their children across the board than any other group. Um, Non-Hispanic whites also fall into that category. 
Those who are, have graduated high school or have attended some college classes also provide their kids more help, but you can see in terms of downloading that you're basically at an even exchange. The proportionate difference is much lower for that group. For English dominant Hispanics and for African Americans, it's more of a back and forth, right? There are some activities that parents are guiding their kids with technology more and others where their children are brokering their connections more. Um, and then we have two groups, those who do not have a high school diploma and Spanish dominant Hispanics, where their kids are providing them more assistance with technology across the board than the reverse, right? So one of the things that this survey gives us as a set of you know, evidentiary data points that we haven't had before is that this is the first time that there's been a nationally representative survey of lower income parents on their own terms, right? That income is not simply a variable, but that you're actually looking at the challenges of lower income families as the topic itself, right? So not comparing across the income spectrum, looking specifically at these families, um, which we think is a major gap in what we know and what we can do. Um, it's also the first time we've been able to differentiate um, Hispanics by um, native born and immigrant. Because if you look at the surveys of, um, of parents or of lower income individuals, Hispanics are often not differentiated by language or nativity because they don't because the sample size of Hispanics isn't large enough to make that possible. So what we found is that Hispanics don't look as different as they have on prior surveys where um, whites and blacks in the same income category look like each other and Hispanics look different. When you differentiate by language or by immigration, it's immigrant Hispanics that look different. US-born Hispanics look like African-Americans. On almost every measure we looked at, they look very much more like their African-American counterparts. Um, and so it means that immigrant Hispanics and parents who have less than a college education, uh, less than a high school diploma, excuse me, um, are the two groups that are highest need. Not necessarily something we didn't know, but it provides more evidence for targeting our efforts at the, these highest need groups. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to finding and translating that information. Did your surveys or studies look into issues where you're talking about basically sensitive information, for example, medical, financial, sorry. <clears throat> Have your surveys looked into situations where there's potentially sensitive information, medical, financial, uh, accessing public services, where obviously the kids may have much more facility with dealing with it, especially medical, Yeah. from personal um, experience? I will need to pay you $20 after this ends for asking that question because you've just stepped into my, my primary sphere of research. Um, so some of the people in this room know that the work that preceded this, um, for about 10 years I've looked at children of immigrants when they're the primary English speakers in their homes and what it means to be the intermediary between, or the broker between your family and an English-speaking environment. I've looked at what it means to go into a doctor's office and speak for your family, what it means to be the intermediary in schools, social services. I'm finishing up a project looking at what that looks like in the court system. Um, but I, in a subset uh, that I wasn't going to talk much about today, we looked at how kids broker online information for their parents that is potentially sensitive um, because the online space offers both opportunities and constraints that are different from those face-to-face -face interactions. But more and more kids are taking the technology into those interactions, so they're translating for mom at the doctor, but they're checking that they've got the right word by using the mobile device, right? So it's not really completely separate. Um, those situations are fraught whether the technology is involved or it isn't. Um, in many families, um, from the families that I've studied, um, and I wrote a book called Kids in the Middle about this topic, but um, for um, families where there's sensitive information, how that gets negotiated depends on a number of things. Um, one is um, the gender of the parent and child in that interaction. When it's a girl brokering for her mom, those conversations are much less fraught than translating for dad especially if it's a girl translating for dad, right? There's a, there's a gendered aspect to that relationship um, around sensitive information that's important. Um, the age of the child uh, makes a difference, obviously. Uh, who the other person is in that interaction makes a difference. How is the doctor responding 
to the interaction that's happening? How are they supporting or not supporting what that kid is doing? Um, when it comes to doing that kind of negotiation with information that's online, um, one of the benefits, and kids um, have said this in words that are far better than I can paraphrase it right now, um, it's sort of like n no one knows your dog online. It's like, well, they don't judge me if I'm asking questions through an online portal for my parents. They don't know how old I am. Um, and so they don't treat me like a kid, and they don't freak out that they have to talk about a gynecological exam to a kid. Um, and some kids find that very freeing, that they could, be, they could be the mother, right? They could be an adult. The person on the other side of that helpline conversation that they're having online, the chat that they're having, doesn't know. Um, but brokering information online also has constraints for kids, right? We've already talked about that these are the kids who are the least likely to be online on a daily basis or to have as much access to the technology as they want to have. They don't have the same digital skill set that would be optimal for dealing with these kinds of challenges. So there's things they don't know how to do. And you're layering that on top of um, having to negotiate two languages and technical information in two languages and at least two sets of cultural norms, right? Because they've got to be culturally appropriate with the parent. They're translating the English, but that English may be infused with a culture related to medicine, right? which is, would be a task for anyone of 25. It's a hell of a task if you're 13. Um, and it might be harder, because no one knows that they're a 13-year-old having this conversation, it might be harder to pull support for those conversations. And so a lot of kids find brokering online more difficult than brokering other types of technology that are static, like a newspaper or stuff that comes in the mail. Um, but less emotionally wrenching than doing it, for example, in an emergency room or in a doctor's office. A follow-up to that on the other side of it. If, let's say, a medical entity found out that this was happening, that a third party was mm -hmm. an intermediary, would HIPAA rules uh, make them go ballistic? Yes. Yes. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, when I was doing my dissertation research, which became that book. Um, I spent a year and a half in a clinic in South Los Angeles as one of the sites where I was both following families in, but also watching what happened in that facility. Um, healthcare is the worst place for kids to have to do this, because um, in most places there are rules about family members translating in healthcare settings. But those places are not necessarily providing interpreters or appropriate support for families. So they bring their best resource, and their best resource is often their kids. Um, and it's even harder to do that kind of work when you're doing it in an environment that is determined to make it impossible for that to be done by children or family members. It made the environment even more hostile as a place to go in and negotiate, and it made their parents more tentative in those interactions than they would have been in others, um, which is something I'm seeing again looking at kids doing this in court. Because um, they obviously are not doing it in the court proceedings, but if they're brokering for mom and her lawyer in the hallway before the interaction, that's not supposed to be happening either. Um, and it's not the kid's fault that that's a violation of the rules. They're doing it because they're the best thing available. Um, and I think you know, kind of de decriminalizing that and being able to look at this from a value-neutral perspective of what free labor kids are offering in circumstances where they have to fill in the void, we do better by looking at what strengths that creates and supporting kids or replacing them with supports that actually support parents in the ways that their kids are doing it, whether it's not just language but also emotional support and a sense that their advocate is invested in them, um, I think is a critically important part of getting immigrant um, families uh, meaningfully connected to American social institutions. It's taking that seriously. Thank you so much for that question and for allowing me to go on clearly a tangent that matters a great deal to me. So the last point that I want to um, bring up to you because I think um, it's fascinating is that once we took this and looked at you know sort of the intensity of guidance that parents are providing, the intensity of um, brokering of technology that children are doing, um, which you can see is more and less intensive in different families here. Once we calculated that, we looked at how that affected what siblings are doing with each other. Like, is the intergenerational dynamic setting a tone for what kids and parents do? 
Or if parents are less able to help kids, do they help each other more? Is there a compensating mechanism in these families that the kids are trying to compensate for parents not being able to help with these things? And we asked, um, we asked parents who had more than one kid between 6 and 13 to tell us um, how often their children help each other um, to go online to learn something new, how often they're um, using video and television to learn together. So all these questions were framed explicitly as learning, but they could define what that meant. Um, to do homework together, arts and science projects together, and to read together or to help each other learn to read, depending on the ages of the kids. Um, and what we found was that in homes where parents are guiding technology use more intensively, those are the homes where kids are helping each other more with homework, with art and science projects, and with reading together. The three kinds of home-based learning that schools recognize as actively supporting learning in school. Right? Those are the forms of learning that they validate um, as things that people can do at home to support what happens in school. When kids drive tech brokering, those kids, kids in those families are significantly more likely to be doing tech-related activities together. Now, homework, science and art projects, and reading could involve technology. They often do, right? You can be reading an ebook. You're going online to do stuff for homework. You're going online to complete a project. They don't have to be tech-related, but they could be. Um, those pair with the families that, at least amongst their peers, are advantaged by higher parental education and often higher income. So even amongst lower-income families, those families are more able to hew to the line of what formal educators validate as the kinds of learning at home that matter. And the, where kids are driving technology uh, learning in the home, right, which is happening amongst those who have less than a high school diploma and Spanish-dominant families, those are homes where kids are doing more of the kinds of activities around learning with technology that are seen as either informal or often as wastes of time by teachers that could be used more constructively. So for me, as someone who's very interested in how kids broker in this more general sense that we've just talked about, I wonder if um, some people, um, this makes me wonder if some people's findings that brokering for your family adversely um, affects your development and your performance in school, if that might not be in part because of what schools are telling them they value in terms of forms of learning and how narrow those definitions are. Right? Um, and so for me, that's an exciting potential area to think about in terms of how to make schools and formal education more responsive to the strengths and resources within families. So those are the things I wanted to talk to you about today. If you're interested in learning more about the project or any of the reports that we've done out of this project, the website for the project is digitalequityforlearning.org. Um, the first three here are individual reports for the three study sites where we did interviews. Um, so the top one is the California study site, the teal, the purple is Denver, um, Arizona's in orange. The case studies of six of those families, the blue one, um, is there. And then the report from the survey, um, and I've got a few copies here if anyone wants to pick up a hard copy or likes to have that. This is the opportunity for all with a question mark is the survey report. And then there's a policy brief um, in the yellow and green. So um, I'm looking forward to more questions and conversation. And I just, before we do that, that's my contact info. That's my team of researchers. Um, and uh, again, it's funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and benefited very much from partnership with the John Gans Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop, where I'm a senior research scientist as well. So thank you very, very much. Uh, hi, thank you for this fascinating talk. Um, I'm a member of the Cambridge Broadband Task Force, and we're I hope headed towards a municipal broadband system here in Cambridge. Very cool. And Cambridge has, you know, is is a ridiculously wealthy city with a digital equity problem. So we have an opportunity, um, you know, to design something different for digital access. I mean, this is a good prescription of what not to do. I mean, what what would you do if um, um, to actually provide access to everybody? Oh man, I'm. I can be queen for a day or a benevolent dictator. Um, 
I'll do a few, I would do a few things. The first thing is that I would try to organize focus groups, perhaps using the schools or other community organizations as partnerships. Bring some families in, feed them, um, definitely feed them, providing childcare if necessary, but talk to families and ask them the kinds of questions we ask them about what they have and why it doesn't work for them. Um, instead of presuming, uh, which you wouldn't, that they're getting online for the first time. What's their past experience been? What have their challenges of connectivity been in the past? What would they design um, that would work for them? Are they primarily using a mobile device that connects only in public spaces? Have they worked out a deal with a neighbor to share a router and they each pay half, which we saw in a lot of families? where People were creative. Um, what are they doing um, that they would prefer to be doing differently? and use that as part of the architecture for the plan. That would already put you about four miles ahead of most programs, no matter how well-intentioned. If you haven't talked to the people that will benefit from it to see what they need, you're done before you start. Um, and a lot of good intention and a lot of money goes into things that don't work. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, I think that the access is crucial, but so are relationships to human beings that can help provide support as people are learning. So providing regular um, support and training opportunities for, for parents and kids, either together or separately, that allows them to increase their confidence and knowledge, troubleshoot problems they're having, is at least as critical as the, you know, the connections um, in technology terms, right, is that the relationships matter a great deal. Um, and using the sites that people already trust and go to as the places to host those things matters. So if the schools have good relationships with those families, work with your best administrators in those. If the churches are the places where people go and spend time and see as refuge, work with the churches. If it's community organizations and resources for specific um, you know, ethnic or immigrant groups that provide services and language train those people to be the, the people who train the families. That's, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's what I would do. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I wanted to follow up on your last comment about the narrowness of what's taught in schools and um, to relate it to technology, because technology is now a core infrastructure of our society. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have access to it, you're not just missing out on the tools for everything else, you're actually missing out on the kind of insights of why things work like they do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I really want to support that. Oh, thank and you. To, see, to ask if you have any other suggestions. Well, I don't think necessarily that the schools are narrow in what they're teaching, but what they're defining as learning, right? What counts as learning is still a very traditional definition. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of challenges with integrating technology into formal learning in schools um, that we haven't addressed quite yet because the model is generally let's get the technology and let's then figure out what we'll do with it. Um, instead of let's design a learning space or a program that will really help kids to do X, Y, and Z, and then bring in the technology that lets us use that program, right? Um, the design seems to come after the technology have entered the schools. Um, and a lot of the time, very well-meaning programs to bring technology into the schools, they haven't done any kind of assessment of where they're starting from, so it's impossible to know whether or not they've moved the needle. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have an idea of what the baseline needs are in a school um, and what gaps there are, then you've introduced a new stimulus into the classroom, but you have no idea whether or not it's made any difference. That's, you know, I'm, I'm not um, an evaluation researcher and I'm not an experimental design person, but pre and post test for something you're introducing seems very important, but it's often in the exuberance of bringing new tech in that pre-test is the part that gets left out. So. Um, We've got, there's a lot of room to improve, but I think that's part of what makes all of this exciting is the technology landscapes change so quickly. What about those experiences and the relationships that matter to kids and families remains consistent and universal, and what might we be able to effect change by engaging technology in ways that enhance those relationships but don't try to replace them? 
Um, hi. Great talk. I really liked it. Thank, uh, you. thank you. And my question was, I think, where you just hinted at something and left it was about mobile devices versus laptops. And, mm -hmm. you know, you made a case for why broadband access is important and needs to be looked at, which I completely agree with. And in fact, in, you know, a lot of developing countries, the argument is that let's just give them basic access and then they can figure it out after that. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you found uh, different behaviors amongst those who have more access or dominant access through mobile phones versus laptops in you know, terms of like exploratory behavior. If you had a laptop at your disposal and internet, mm. you'd be probably more likely, I don't know, to actually do a bunch of Google searches with no immediate end. But if you are just using a mobile device, which is more communicative in nature. Right. So I was wondering if you had any insights on that. Right. So um, the slide that I had um, back here talk, you know, kind of addresses that a little bit, um, which is you know, that people are using the mobile devices for a narrower set of tasks. Um, you know, part of what you're pointing to is you know, if you give people access and you give it to them on a device that's capable of a much broader range of activities, will they use it more broadly? Um, you know, studies, you know, uh, long before mine and in greater numbers, um, have shown that you know the more points of access, the more types of devices people have, the more intensively they engage and use them because they use them for different tasks. Um, but one of the issues that um, your question made me think about that we haven't talked about—that's a whole other area. Um, of digital equity issue um, that is very important and very current is if you're giving people access, you know, whether it's in a developing country or here, are you giving them the whole internet or are you filtering it? Um, there was a um, very nice piece in the Atlantic uh, in the last couple of weeks about how internet filtering hurts kids and how it hurts the lowest income kids the most. Um, because there are all kinds of programs through schools and school issued devices that filter out content that is inappropriate um, for kids, right? Um, obviously, some of that is reasonable, but the reach seems to be too large. Um, you know, we interviewed families in two of the three districts that had filters um, on devices that went home with kids. They couldn't access YouTube, uh, which is a major learning platform for kids. Now, obviously, there are things on YouTube that maybe kids shouldn't be looking at, but the problem is when the platforms have multiple purposes, it's very hard to make a, a universal decision for the entire platform. Um, because families would get on a different device to use YouTube to extend learning beyond the homework. Um, Facebook usually is filtered out. Um, the majority of immigrant families in our um, interview pool used Facebook as a way to stay connected with family back in Mexico. And so kids are actually using it as a way to maintain not just connection to family, but to practice Spanish. Um, it's very hard to navigate what filters there could or should be and which ones there shouldn't be. But if what we give low-income kids through digital equity programs is a filtered version of the internet, then that's not equity. That's something else. Um, and we need, to, we need to own up to that. It's, those are conversations happening in Silicon Valley, internet.org. right? Um, even with the best of intentions, it's not the same internet. Um, you know, in, in the developing world, these issues are, are certainly present. My cousin is working for the Ministry of Education in Addis Ababa at the moment, and she read this report. She said, what you're describing as underconnected in America is like the top of the range in Ethiopia. Like, I'd love to be as underconnected as these, as these families are, but it's relative to what you're missing, right? By what underconnected means is relative to how connected um, the most privileged are in whatever space you're in, right? Thank you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll stop. Meryl. Um, yeah, so a methodological question yes. about um, interview and the ways that people access their own understanding of their technology use. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if something was learned for if people were also demonstrating to you through their mobile devices how they searched. If you did some kind of systematic, not user mm -hmm. experience review, but um, or if in the future, for some people, 
not, not just a language barrier, but kind of an articulation barrier, um, and kind of showing you how they access mm -hmm. as a prompt for greater um, awareness of their own practice. We did that to the best of our abilities within, you know, conducting an interview. The children's interviews, um, if we were at home, they walked us through the house, um, and we mapped out on a worksheet where everything in the home was. Um, digital, non-digital, mobile, non-mobile. Um, we mapped out the whole house, and if we were at school, we'd have them start with, this was more than half the interview with the kid, um, was let's start at the front door, and they would narrate to us where everything in the house was. Now, obviously, they're going to forget certain things, but their recall's much better in that kind of concrete um, activity, and it put them immediately in the position of being the experts. Um, and then we'd have them pick the three rooms in the house they spent the most time in, usually their room, their parents' room, and the living room. Which one of these, which media that you've told us are in this room, what's most important to you? Why? Who do you think owns it? Who uses it most? In what language? For what kinds of activities? What rules are associated with it? And that elicited the kinds of things you would never get in a standard interview. Um, one of my favorites was the kid that, um, you know, he was, he's seven. Um, he told us that the tablet was on the coffee table or the top of the cabinet in the living room. I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, when I'm bad, it's on top of the cabinet, <laughs> right? Which tells you something that the parent would either not remember or choose not to tell us. And I said, well, where is it most of the time? On top of the cabinet, right? So how much time is this kid really spending with that technology? And how is it being used as a carrot um, for good behavior is, is illustrative, right? You can't get out of an interview what you would get out of, a, out of an extended home visit, but that wasn't what we were trying to do. Um, a study that um, I've done with Carmen uh, Gonzalez and Jason Yip um, has been sitting with kids and having them take us through um, like the last task they went online for their parent to do and narrate us through what they did and where they hit a roadblock and so on to actually engaging in a narrative study of the search process and where the constraining and enabling factors and what strategies they're using and having them guide us. So it's a kind of subset of the same study, but it's a, you know, we do a deeper dive into that particular thing. And obviously, we can talk about that in more detail. But thank you very much for the question. That's a good one. Yes, sir. Hi. Have you had a chance in this to observe possibly any technological or pricing-based redlining in these communities mm -hmm. um, in terms of either the services offered or in terms of the services available at any price or you know, things like right. even, even things like bundling because some of these families might pick internet but not TV and then it's actually more expensive? There were a lot of families who were signed up for bundles that they didn't need, but that's true everywhere. Um, you know, there, there were some parents who talked about, you know, calling the company to find out about Connect to Compete and being upsold to something more expensive than Connect to Compete because the person on the phone would say, but you can't get the football from Mexico at that speed. You're going to need something higher, right? But they were obviously using um, sales tactics that were designed for this um, audience. But I don't know if that's, um, you know, that's anecdotal evidence. And I don't know if that's a particularly enterprising service representative or if that's something that was formally advised. I haven't seen evidence of that. Um, although I do, you know, obviously it's, new, it's a very important issue um, related to understanding how these programs should or could roll out, definitely. All right. I wanted to thank Vicki for uh, thank this you. really illuminating <laughs> discussion and thank all of you. And, oh. thank, thank you very, very much for having me.